production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here, also a proud member. Today's May 1st. It has been seven weeks since Ohio's stay-at-home order was first issued. And once again, we're presenting our forum today from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner. As you know, today is International Workers' Day, May Day, and there are protests and strikes happening all over. But today is also Law Day, which marks our nation's commitment to the rule of law. And this year's theme, which was chosen by the American Bar Association, is Your your Vote, Your Voice, Our Democracy, the 19th Amendment at 100, which celebrates the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which, of course, extended the right to vote to women. Despite the 19th Amendment, however, the right to vote does not mean everyone has equal access to the ballot box. That was true decades ago, when women and men of color were not able to vote in the Jim Crow South. And today, when Americans wait in hours-long lines to cast ballots or cannot receive a ballot by mail because they are homeless, it's unfortunately still true. The coronavirus pandemic is amplifying these issues as the country ponders how and when to conduct an election during a public health crisis. Today, we'll talk about voter rights during times of crisis and how we might balance electoral integrity with all the requirements of this coronavirus world. Before we introduce our speaker, I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, visit cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. You can also become a member at cityclub.org slash members. Also, a special thanks to our friends at the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association for their partnership on our Law Day Forum this year and every year. Now to our speaker, Virginia Case is CEO of the League of Women Voters, an organization founded a century ago by leaders in the women's suffrage movement, dedicated to advocacy, legislation and litigation, and organizing efforts centered around issues of voting rights and democracy reform. She has more than 20 years' experience working in the nonprofit sector and is a passionate activist and advocate for social justice. You can join us with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them in in the second half of the program. Virginia Case, we're so glad to have you with us. Welcome to the City Club. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And um, I just also want to say thank you to the City Club as a whole, because you guys have been a really longtime partner of the Greater Cleveland League in elevating and formed and and civic dialogue in your community. So I appreciate that very much. I think all of us across the country owe the leagues, the various leagues of women voters, a a great debt of gratitude. I want to start with history and move pretty quickly into the state of ballot box access today. But in terms of history, it was 100 years ago, and that uh, at this point, the nation would have been waiting for the 36th uh, state to ratify ratify the 19th Amendment, had other 35 states having done so already. that moment really does shine as a as a, a sort of particularly symbolic moment when a promise was kept. 
theoretically? Theoretically, yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think one of the big challenges for us as an organization, because we're 100 years old as well, the League was born out of the suffrage movement, is how do you sit in the complexity of celebration knowing that so many were left behind? And so we've really tried to be very thoughtful on how we um, saying rather than it's a celebration, it's a commemoration of this great event that that and this great achievement. Also understanding that many people didn't get to benefit from the 19th Amendment in, right away. That it, it is true, and it took until 1964 for some of the other restrictions, the poll taxes, literacy tests, and others to be removed, um, thanks to the 24th Amendment. Um, how are we doing today? Much better <laughs> than, than we were in 1920 or in 1964. But I mean, there's just, um, there's just this new wave of disenfranchisement that exists, um, or maybe new forms of it, new ways of, of, of um, ensuring that some people are left behind. And so while we have come a long way, we still have a long way to go. I think that, um, you know, you look at modern day poll taxes, we talk about, um, you know, just the fight most recently in Florida on Amendment 4 and being forced to pay restitution and the battle that has ensued beyond that. It just seems as though um, whenever one hurdle is overcome, there are new ones that are put forward. And so we need to continue to be vigilant and pay attention to where those barriers exist and, and fight against them. I'm not sure everybody will be familiar with Florida's Amendment 4. Um, is that, it, just trying to understand what you said, is that that, that uh, previously convicted uh, ex-offenders who owe restitution need to pay that restitution before they're able to cast a ballot? Yeah, so in Florida, Amendment 4, and the League was very heavily engaged in this, um, in the fight, um, prior to Amendment 4 passing, which was a citizen's initiative, it was a ballot initiative that took place in the state of Florida, and people, the, the citizens said, we want people who were, who were formerly incarcerated to still have the ability to vote once they have paid their debt to society. They want to be able to, they wanted to make sure that people were able to be re-enfranchised, especially when so many of those individuals were not violent offenders. These, we're not talking about murderers and rapists. We're talking about people who were low-level offenders who have done their time, done what they needed to do. Um, and so this great achievement um, in 2018 happened and then um you know another hurdle was placed in front of them and that was this idea that they had to pay restitution um for anything so if there were any outstanding um fines or court fees anything of that nature that they would then be required to pay those before they could vote again um, and so it's just um again another way that people that people who should have the right to vote are not able to do so. When you look out across the entire nation, is there any state uh, whose balloting procedures and, and policies and laws don't concern you? Is there any state that's sort of doing it right, that is the model of ballot access? I think it varies state by state. I wish I could say, well, this state is the best state. I will say that there are states like Minnesota who have the greatest voter turnout in the country. And so when you look at certain states, you can most certainly say, well, if voter turnout is as high as it is, 
um, then clearly something is going right there in those states. And there are states that have greater levels of access than other states. I won't say that any state is 100% doing it right, so to speak. I think that there are a lot of different states who are doing parts of it right. For example, Washington State, they started early with um, vote by mail, and that's why you didn't see the same number of issues in their primary that you saw in so many other places, like unfortunately your, your state here of Ohio. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Virginia Case. She's our speaker for our Friday forum. It's our Law Day forum, and the uh, and we're speaking with Virginia Case on Law Day because we are celebrating and recognizing the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Virginia Case is the CEO of the League of Women Voters, and you can join us with a question by tweeting it at the City Club, or you can text it to 330-541-5794. I'm Dan Malthrop. And um, talk about Ohio. Talk about what just happened, because it was um, it was just this last week that we made it through an extended balloting uh, that was a, a balloting time that was a balloting term that was extended for the purposes of um, because a in-person voting was shut down at the last minute, at the 11th hour, or really, at, I think it was like 7 a.m. to be precise, um, on Election Day. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the way that Ohio handled it and what was good about that response and what could have been done better? Yeah, I mean, one of the things when you look at Ohio in particular, um, and I have to say for me, which was probably the best thing about this, was the engagement at the community level and the civic engagement um, through great organizations like the League, um, like the NAACP, like Common Cause. I mean, there are so many wonderful partners in your state who are doing just incredible work to make sure that people have the information they need. Um, so I think that's the silver lining for me is just seeing the work that um, nonprofits and civic um, engagement groups were doing on the ground in Ohio. It really is truly a model. Um, the Board of Elections, you know, officials, let me tell you, one of the things, they are the unsung heroes. I think they're probably getting more recognition now because people see all of the challenges. But local Board of Elections officials who were, you know, challenged with these really, you know, difficult circumstances and being able to make, pull the elections off, so to speak. Um, I think that that some of the challenges that that we've observed, at least at the national level, and this is the feedback that I hear from our leadership in Ohio, uh, Jen Miller, who's an who's incredible, is the executive director um, here in Ohio, is that there just wasn't enough time to prepare. Um, and that's one of the things that I think, you know, any elections official, especially we have many primaries, I think there are probably still 39 maybe that are that are going to be happening throughout the country. Um, because it's not just about the presidential primaries, people limit it to it's just the presidential primary. No, there are a lot of really important elections that are happening around the country. And having the time to prepare, especially in the midst of, of coronavirus, is, um, is key and imperative. Um, I think there are some improvements that could have been made, um, mailing ballots to all voters with prepaid postage, um, allowing multiple early voting locations per county um, is, is, is critically important. Um, you know, there are just there are a variety of different different things. And I think the, the key message that we would like to get out is that, especially here in Ohio, Ohioans need to join these efforts to improve the electoral um, election systems uh, before the August special and, and the November general elections. 
When you talk about mailing ballots to uh, postage paid ballots to 100 percent of voters, um, that is a different way that uh, in which ballot access can be granted. The the procedure today is um, there's a few steps to it. Um, some have called it arcane, um, requiring the you know that you need to you can get a, a an application either online or by sending a sending uh, a request to the you can get an application to request a ballot and then you get the ballot and then you you fill out your ballot and then you send it back in inside two different envelopes and so on and so forth. Um, how does it? What is the easiest way to set up a process? for voter access by for for vote by mail no quote unquote no fault vote by mail or no excuse vote by mail look i think it starts with just making sure that every single person every registered voter has a ballot mailed to them it's not rocket science it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you receive your ballot and it has prepaid postage to return it the likelihood is it's going to get back in the mail um, and you see some of the challenges. I heard just some horror stories um, from people when it comes to vote by mail. I mean, people who were disabled having to go to the po- I mean, to the post office or to go to a grocery store to buy a book of, of stamps. Now, can you imagine in the midst of this pandemic, somebody who already has who is a disabled person, unable to make it, you know traditionally without certain supports to be able to get to the grocery store or the post office. But then you have to overcome the fact that you need to have a mask. You could have a compromised immune system, all of these things. And so just in general, you know, hearing stories like that is heartbreaking because we know that there are people who automatically were not able to participate just for whatever reasons exist. Not to mention the fact that we have how many Americans who have filed for unemployment Sometimes that $12 that you need to pay for a book of stamps at the grocery store because the post office isn't open, you know, um, that that make it, makes a difference be some, between somebody's be, being able to have a meal for their families for two evenings. I mean, people are penny pinching across the board. You shouldn't have to worry about buying a stamp. And so um, we want to make sure that we're lay, uh, leveling the playing field for every voter. So just making sure that every voter, voter gets a ballot, prepaid return postage, that will simplify the process 100%. Do you, now there are some states where there's only vote by mail and mm-hmm. there are, there is no in-person voting. I believe Oregon mm-hmm. is a, is a, is a completely vote by mail state. Um, what do you do in a, in states where there's a hybrid system where you have some vote by mail, some in-person voting this year, I voted in person at the board of elections the week before the, the first election day. My wife voted absentee or by mail three mm-hmm. weeks later. Um, how do you ensure if, if I've received a ballot in the mail that I don't go to the that I, I don't do the in-person voting and so forth? Like, how do you ensure that it is just one voter, one vote? Well, that's why they have um, the election systems and elections officials is really important. They have worked hard to put great procedures in place to make sure that votes aren't being double cast, so to speak. Just the safeguards and the protocols that are put in place um, from elections administrators will create will prevent that from happening. Um, there's a double check. And I think the other thing that's important to note just around vote by mail is the importance of signature matching and having people who are adequately trained to do signature matching. Because we've found that more people are disenfranchised 
because for whatever reason, their signature has been thrown away um, as a result of, of, of the signature matching um, and, and, and unfairly. Um, and I think one of the things that's also important to highlight if you're thinking about states is that Colorado has made maintained really strong in-person voting opportunities, even while the state has gone to mostly by mail. So when you say uh, signature matching and signatures being thrown out, uh, say like my signature has evolved over time and I vote in every election, but uh, ultimately the, you know, the the way that I do the M has changed. And then somebody could say, no, I'm sorry, that vote is now no longer valid. Yeah. And then so you have to then prove that that actually is your signature. And so in a moment like this, we don't want people having to go through those hoops and barrels, which means that we need to have people who are trained really well on signature matching to ensure that um, people aren't inadvertently losing their opportunity to vote because their signature isn't matching to the way it was. I mean, I gosh, when did I get my driver's license? How long ago that I've signed, you know, my driver's license? Um, can you imagine? And that's where I registered to vote, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the motor vehicle. So if, if it's my signature is all over the place, can you imagine, um, you know, having that um, be the cause of me not being able to cast a ballot? It just seems unlikely. I mean, unreal that that would be the case, but it does happen. Another issue with mail ballots is that, uh, and our, our president somewhat famously articulated this last month, when he said that um, that if there was no fault mail balloting across the country, you'd never see another Republican elected again. And as um, one of our nation's leading voter ballot access advocates, I'd like to give you a chance to respond to that perception. Well, I have to sigh on that one. And I think it's a, it's a pain point for me. Because, um, first of all, that's not even in line with what so many um, Republicans are saying themselves. I mean, in Florida, the, the truth is that vote by mail is something that um, even the president himself has benefited from. And in all actuality, you see more Republicans casting ballots in Florida by mail than you do um, Democrats. The other thing is you're seeing a movement by many, many, many governors right now. For example, Larry Hogan in the state of Maryland, who has said we want to be able to have vote by mail because it's going to enfranchise more people. We're going to make sure that more voters have access. And where I think there's a there's a struggle is that somehow voting has become a partisan issue when really vote, voting is about the people. It's about individuals, Americans who want to be able to have their voices heard so that we can determine who we want best representing us. And when the parties politicize it, it just um, it, 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 it's just very unfortunate. But Virginia Case, uh, hasn't voting always been a partisan issue? No, I mean, I think I mean, the, I think the, like sort of in, in the kind of pure yeah. theoretical terms that people who advocate for good government and believe in the sort of values of a constitutional democracy and the rule of law, which we're recognizing today here on Law Day, um, would certainly side with you that voting is just sort of, you know, pure foundational democratic principles at, at play. Um, but it's always been in the history of America. It's always been wielded as a uh, as a partisan tool. Yeah, but I mean, I think where you went before, which I think is important, is that it's a fundamental core principle. It's, it's set in our 
founding documents. We need to be able to determine who our elected officials are. So these parties have been formed. The result of elections are always partisan, but the actual process of elections should not be. Um, and so obviously there are going to be these battles. There are going to be these fights that ensue and exist time and time again, because people on both sides, both sides are fighting because they want to be able to have that power and control. But the process of it should not be partisan. And that's where I think we want to draw the line. We understand the results will be. We understand the administration side of it should not be. Um, and that the parties are going to duke it out behind the scenes. Um, and so I just I think it needs to be looked at in its totality. Which other states um, are you deeply concerned about right now? I know that the League of Women Voters has active litigation in several places. Yeah. Um, I mean, Wisconsin, obviously, we all saw what happened in Wisconsin, and, and there's great concern there. Um, I think the difference, though, when we talk about um, in the midst of this pandemic, I think we're worried about all states, but there are those states who are disproportionately already impacted by the fact that when the Go Voting Rights Act was um, gutted back in 2013 in the case of Shelby v. Holder, we saw that those pre-clearance provisions that were put in place whenever changes would be happening, um, that reporting that need to ha needed to happen no longer exists. And so we already had started to see an increase in voter disenfranchisement post uh, Shelby v. Holder in 2013. And I think that's just really been exacerbated um, most recently because of the pandemic. So you have kind of this double whammy where we're coming up on this huge presidential election. Um, and then on top of it, we have these issues with uh, the COVID-19 um, situation. Are there states uh, where you're particularly worried about, um, about voter suppression? Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, it goes back to those key states. We're, we're talking um, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, um, a lot of the southern states in particular. And then there are some Midwestern states as well. I mean, we, we, we look at, uh, you know, uh, um, Indiana is also a concern for us. Missouri is a concern for us. So there are states throughout the country um, and in the, the middle section of the country where we see a great opportunity. But again, don't, you know, don't forget the fact that there are always those tensions that exist. And this has, um, this pandemic has become an opportunity for bad actors to insert themselves and find new and creative ways. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are mitigating any damage or, or additional problems that could exist as a result. Can you talk about that tension? I mean, I feel that here in Ohio, for instance, when, um, when our Secretary of State was going about what he perceived to be his duty to uh, clean the data that the uh, of the voter roll data, um, that he was going about it in the way prescribed by law, he would say, I believe, um, and he will tell me if I've mis misstated this, um, and it was characterized by advocates uh, as a purge, um, and uh, the, what is the what are what are secretaries of state and elections officials supposed to do to ensure that they have accurate data? People move, they don't register at their new location. They may, there may be, um, if I had moved three or four times, I might not be, you know, I, I might still have a, 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 an, identi an identifying address at some other place. How, do, how should people take care of that if they're the public official? 
Well, I think it's it's there are a few different ways. I mean, one of the most Im important um, ways that you can do is in addition to doing adequate outreach to ensure that those voters have um, been um, their information has been updated either with the post office, the motor vehicle, wherever it, it is that 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 it may exist. Um, Elections officials can work, especially locals, local election, election officials, they can work with local organizations like the League to find a strategy in advance that is, again, nonpartisan. We're not talking about either side or the other. And, and I want to make sure that we're not making... Um, Secretary LaRose a bad guy in this in this moment, because he has actually been really, um, I think, one of the better secretaries of state um, across the country who has worked really hard to try and, and find, um, you know, solutions. Um, and, and, and so I think it's a matter of working proactively with community organizations. It's a matter of working proactively with other government agencies to see if we can track down those individuals in advance before you go that route. Um, and then when people perhaps find themselves on that list and, and notify and, and posting the list, I mean, you need to make the list public. At the end of the day, people need to know that their name is on this list so that they can make sure that they're saying, hey, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm not gone. Um, and I think uh, one of that, that's also one of the things that's critically important. Well, and I think ultimately what you just described is what did happen eventually in Ohio, thanks to the your colleagues here at the, at the Ohio League of Women Voters and the Secretary of State who did work in partnership to make sure that those lists were public. Um, we're talking with Virginia Case. She's the CEO of the League of Women Voters, the National League of Women Voters, which, by the way, um, also has male voters that are among its members. Um, and, uh, and, and if you'd like to join our conversation, you can text your question to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. I'm going to move along to some questions from our community right now. Um, for the general election, should the public push at least for availability of mail ballots in all states along with paid postage? And if that's the case, who pays? So uh, that that is actually a complex question. Um, and the reason that um, it would be great if we could have vote by mail, universal vote by mail. Um, the reality is that it takes a long time to put those systems in place if they don't already exist. Um, and that's just that's just reality. And we just are the window to be able to do it well in, um, is, is, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we want to make sure that folks who are um, who are advocating also understand that there's an administrative piece to this that is just absolutely critical to um, to being able to have good elections. Um, so, no, I don't think that we can do universal vote by mail this election season. I just don't think that you could do it well enough everywhere across the board in every state. But there are a lot of states who already have vote by mail or some type of voting by mail, whether it's by absentee ballot, you know, a variety of different forms. In those cases, I think it's really important that elected officials and um, state legislatures, you know, whomever is responsible for making those decisions, because again, so much of it is state by state. In some places, it's written in your state constitution that you can only do in-person voting. So you literally have to call the state legislature together to be able to make those changes. So there's a lot of there are a lot of nuances state by state on what can and cannot be done. But for those who can or have some limited form, the expectation is that you should be able to cast a ballot um, 
by mail. Now, as far as who pays for it, because we do believe that prepaid postage is, is, is important. Um, so that's why we're fighting for additional funding right now from the federal government. There was only $400 million that was set aside out of the third stimulus package or the third relief package for um, election systems. And we're saying that is absolutely not enough. There was four hundred million dollars in the two trillion dollar package. I'm sorry, four hundred billion dollars. I mean, four hundred million. million. Um, no, I'm no, four hundred million. I'm sorry. And so what we want to do is say, you know, we need to have more money available because that is just pennies in the grand scheme of thing in order to be able to have, um, you know, the elections ready for November. Um, and that's just, it is what it is. We need at least $3.6 billion more in order to be able to hold the elections in a way that um, would allow for every state to have vote by mail, have the prepaid postage, do all, put all of the, the provisions in place to make it work in a very healthy way. And so does that include, I mean, you've alluded to the fact that implementing national vote by mail would be virtually impossible to do in such short order. So that would imply then that we'd have to make polling places much more um, safe for uh, for voters Absolutely. and poll workers, um, something along the lines of what we witnessed in South Korea a few weeks ago when they um, when they had a nation- national balloting that was seems to be fairly successful with with fairly high turnout and low incidence of COVID transmission. Yeah. And so and I just want to go back, though, real quickly about Congress and the the funding. They need to do that this year. I mean, I think that that's something if there's a takeaway, if Ohioans want to be able to really talk about what's going to make what's going to ensure the funding needs to be there and they need to do it soon. They need to do it now to put those resources in place so it can get out to states like Ohio so that you have safe and healthy elections. Um, Do you have advocates in in the Senate and and the House of Representatives? We do. We have and we are working all of our contacts, obviously, up on the the hill and we are working with other partners and organizations. But the the real the real um, movement and the push only comes from people like you, people like myself, people like every day, every voter, every person in this country needs to be able to be pushing for that because it's in our own self-interest that we do. If you don't want to have to go to the polls or if you want to ensure that the elections are safe and healthy, it really is every Congress has a home office in their state and in their jurisdiction. Every Congress person has an office up on Capitol Hill and they need to be making those phone calls and sending emails and saying we need these these elections funded properly and adequately. Well, I think there are a lot of listeners who are very familiar familiar with the uh, direct phone numbers of their congressional representatives' home offices and their senators' uh, statewide offices as well. Um, I've heard about those calls from my own mother. Uh, (laughs) This is from a a teacher uh, who is watching uh, virtually with students appropriate social distancing from their homes, some of whom will turn 18 soon. He asks, "How, how can teens who don't yet vote get involved in promoting ballot access? Well, the same thing. Now, I think one of the things that people forget is that young people are, are, are citizens, too, and they should also be doing that same type of outreach. The other thing is that young people can build out their own um, their own team, their home team, so to speak. So making sure that you're talking to your parents, your aunts, your uncles, anybody who's over 18 who ha- has the right to vote, engaging them as well. But young people, a lot of the changes that happen in this country aren't because of people like me. 
or people like you. It's young people who are actually making the difference. When you see the movement that we've seen on gun safety in this country, on climate, on issue after issue, you know, being an activist doesn't have an age requirement. There is no mandatory minimum, you know, age or, you know, to, to be able to be engaged in your community. So it's about making phone calls, writing letters, finding, uh, finding the information and sharing it out with everybody you know as much as you can. And don't forget, social media is just one of the greatest tools. Um, and making sure that that information is accurate and that you're helping to educate voters, there's nothing more I can think that um, better that, that young people could be doing right now. The question that is more of a statement, but I'll throw it back at you uh, for your response. Voting didn't somehow become a partisan issue. Voter suppression made it a partisan issue. Would you agree? I agree um, in many ways, but I also think that um, that access as a whole in itself is um, has historically been a challenge. Um, and so I think Yes, and there are still other contributing factors. Can you talk about race? Uh, what, how, where do we begin? Um, in the context of which thing? In the context <laughs> of voter suppression, ballot access. Mm -hmm. You know, I always tell this story for folks because um, I, I grew up um, with um, a foster, I grew up, I have a foster mother that um, helped to raise me for a long time when my mom was, was critically unwell. And she is from Puerto Rico. And she took me to vote for the first time. And I'll never forget this moment because for me, it was one of such grave, it just, it was life changing for me. We go to vote my first presidential election. I'm so excited. Here I am, this new young voter. And it was very much a rite of passage for me. She was excited to take me. We had gone to the same polling location that she had been to time and time again. Um, when I get there, I'm checking in. So is she, we're in these separate lines. I'm all set to go and I look over and she's having a problem. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it's, you know, her English isn't that great. Maybe I need to, to translate for, for her. And when I got over there, they were asking her for proof of residence. Although she had voted in the same polling location time and time again, um, nothing had changed. The only thing that was different was the person who she was checking in with. And that for me was just such an, a life-altering moment and really sparked a lot of the activism that I've engaged in around voting rights um, because I realized that that was, I didn't know what was going on in the moment. I just knew it felt wrong. Um, and so voter suppression um, comes in all forms. And, and, and when I say that, I mean that it is sometimes the smallest, most nuanced thing. It can be very discreet in some ways. Um, Fortunately, my mom was able to vote that day because she went home, got a utility bill, came back, had her driver's license, slammed it down on the table, being the woman that she is. And she said, toma, which means take it in Spanish. And, um, and she was able to, to, to vote that day. But I share that story just because it's, um, yes, voter suppression can be very strategic, but it can also be very, very quiet. And I think that that's important to note. Um, but when it comes to race as a whole, historically, um, black people, African-Americans have been disenfranchised and that's built into the fabric of our country. Make no mistake about it. There were the founders and there were rich 
male white landowners. I mean, right. And, and, and who this country was, how the, how the constitution was framed and built and who it was built for. Um, and so ever since there has been, and, 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 and African-Americans were only considered three fifths of a person for how long? I mean, so, so yes, it is intentional. It takes on new forms. And I think that it's so deeply embedded into the psyche of, of America in some ways that um, it will continue to be a battle until there are huge systemic reforms that take place. We fought for something called HR1 um, in Congress and it's, it's sitting in, in the graveyard in the Senate um, known as the For the People Act, which was a huge comprehensive omnibus um, voting rights package that would have hopefully been able to tackle a lot of these systemic issues that exist. Um, because quite frankly, the Civil Rights Act was great, um, but still far too many people are left behind and it's taking other different forms. Let's go to uh, another question right now. I have a bunch more, but I'll, I'll save mine. Um, do states with widespread voting by mail see any coercion or ballot review by employers or spouse? Um, there is a different thing that happens when you're voting at home as opposed to voting yeah, at the ballot box. Um, you both have really access to more question. information and, and more time, um, but also a little less privacy. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, you know, the thing that's interesting is I heard all of these um, stories about post-2016 and what people's voting um, did to relationships. Um, now, as far <laughs> so, I mean, there were a lot of people who on one side you had people voting for Donald Trump, the other side you had people voting for, for Hillary Clinton. Um, so I can't really speak to relationships um, as it relates to vote by mail, although, you know, I, I, I'm not the expert in that area as far as it comes to differences in voting. But I will say as far as employers, that's not even one that I had really considered in the context of voting by mail from home. There was, um, a, there was a time when employer coercion was widespread. Do we see that at all anymore other than, I mean, there's certainly when employers, large employers are hosting a presidential candidate or for some sort of media event, there's often uh, sort of subtle forms of coercion that you have to show up and all of that and wave a sign. But, um, but with ballots? Yeah, I'm, I wish I could speak to that a little bit more articulately, but that's an area where I, I, I want to say that it just hasn't been part of my radar in the context of where we are now with vote by mail and, and during uh -huh. uh, the pandemic. Every now and then, one of our uh, city club members does stump a speaker. But, Stumped yeah. me right here. <laughs> I mean, there are larger issues as a whole, right? I mean, right. and I think one of the, th in the context of vote by mail, I think that's a really interesting question. Is one I'm going to go back and debate with my team because I think it'll be interesting to find some data behind that. Our, we are speaking with Virginia Case. She's CEO of the League of Women Voters. The team that she's speaking of are her colleagues at that century-old organization celebrating its centennial this year. And uh, as we are also noting the centennial of the 19th Amendment, of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which extended franchise to women. Um, another question back to signature mismatch. Um, from what I hear, the rate of signature mismatch ballot rejections varies considerably from one county to the next, which is an additional problem. There are different sets of standards. What reforms do we need? 
I mean, I think, and that's one of the things that, again, when we look at what some of the challenges are that currently exist, every state and every locality has their own, um, I mean, the, the criteria and the way that it exists does vary from state by state. I think um, being able to go back to what I talked about with, with HR1 and, and with being able to hopefully at some point have some kind of universal vote by mail system, what that would do is create some uniformity um, to ensure that that there were, you know, consistent standards and practices and guidelines across the board. And again, I can't go back to the importance of being able to have people who are trained well in signature matching as you're looking at who's um, casting their ballots. The uh, There's a, another follow-up question on signatures. Who actually verifies signatures on absentee ballots and how is it done? So again, it's a process that varies from state by state. Mm -hmm. um, and so their elections officials usually um, recruit people the same way you would do, do poll workers, right? The people you, when you have elections officials who sit at, you know, your voting location, there are people who recruit it and heavily trained in order to be able to test those ballots in, in most cases. So do you, um, do you also advocate for uh poll workers for people to volunteer it's not really volunteer when you're being paid but you got to get the day off to be able to do it um, but to but for individuals to participate in that because it seems to me that a lot of uh, there are a lot of concerns that we all have as you have rightly pointed out sometimes it's the actions of an individual that uh, the those individual actions add up to structural racism mm -hmm. that suppresses the vote do you, as, a, as, as an individual or as an organization, advocate for more people to get involved in working the polls? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we know is really important is um, making sure that we have people who are ready to step up the plate, up to the plate and do this work. And for example, in Ohio, I go back to you guys because you're so, you know, you really have been a great example. And unfortunately, you've had to be first in experiencing so many of the challenges this, this most recent election um, uh, cycle. But um, Jen Miller in Ohio and, and the league in Ohio was, you know, working really, really hard to try and recruit um, young people in particular. We knew what we knew at the time. Right. And it was this idea that there were going to be, you know, young that didn't the disease just didn't affect young people who were healthy with, you know, uncompromised immune systems. Um, as disproportionately. And so leagues across the country are doing this all the time. They are also engaged in a lot of advocacy around making sure that people have the adequate training that they need so that when they go to be a poll worker or they're volunteering to do signature matching, um, that they have the training and the supports they need to do so well. And so that is something that the league has historically done and will continue to do. Um, and, you know, a funny story is even going back to Florida, talking about... Um, you know, many decades ago now with the hanging chads, you know, it was literally there were league members who were holding these ballots looking to see whether or not um, these ballots could be qualified. Let's not go back to 2001. <laughs> I, I had already gone back there in my mind and I prefer not to. Um, the uh, in-person voting requires the purchase of machines, storage between storage of those machines between elections, delivery to the polling places, staffing and poll staffing at the polling places. Don't mail-in ballots save considerable funds? Um, well, it depends because again, there is there is also a process, and when you look at securing ballots making sure that, um, you know, the ballots have to be printed, they have to go out by mail, they have instructions, you need the return prepaid postage, you need to make sure that they are being secured um, 
in, in a facility once they've been received. Um, so there are a lot of different things that go into it. Those kind of hidden, uh, hidden, hidden behind the scenes costs that maybe it seems simple because it's just print, mail, you know, sign, fill out, return, but it's not quite that simple. There is a lot more complexity to it. So I would say no, not necessarily. Do you ha- look at uh, other nations as a for best practices? And if so, which ones? So the league, um, we feel, honestly, we feel like despite all of the challenges that we have as a country, that we still feel like America is one of the best democracies that exist. And that um, while we'll we'll go through these challenges and those are they're growing pains, any democracy will go through growing pains. Um, but we still feel like we are one of the better models throughout the world. Um, and 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 we like who we are. We just know we can do better. We see a lot of nations with uh, higher voter turnout. The voter turnout numbers, uh, particularly in off-year elections, but even even in um, years of presidential elections, are often somewhat disappointing. Typically, falling well below fifty percent of eligible voters who actually cast ballots. Um, how much of a concern is that? As far as I'm sorry, can you repeat? You said. How much of a concern the the low voter the fact that we have such low voter turnout or what what appears to many to be low voter turnout is that a concern for the League of Women Voters? Absolutely. I mean, we have um, this great. I think part of it is voter education. So we have a voter education website called vote411.org, um, and we've just been nominated for a Webby. I'm very excited about that. Congratulations. Um, but it's uh, thank you. Um, but it is um, our voter education website where people can go and they can find out information from everything on how to register to vote, um, where their polling location is, information about the candidates, updates, especially now. I think there was one weekend where we did, uh, one week where we did 26 updates, both in English and in Spanish, on what was happening with the primary elections. Um, so I think, yes, we, we are disappointed. We want more people to turn out to vote, but we also know that um, the reasons that people perhaps don't show up is because a they don't have the information they need, b they don't have the access that they need, um, and c in some cases there's just a sense of apathy that exists because they feel like is my vote going to count and that directly ties into um, redistricting and gerrymandering and so those are all areas where the league is fighting we are working hard we're advocating on those issues and um, we will continue to do so because that's what we're here for. When you talk about uh, about voter suppression, the um, there are others who will say that the work that they do to um, to clean voter rolls or to ensure or to advocate for voter ID laws is about avoiding fraud at the ballot box. Um, I'd like to give you a chance to address those concerns. Yes. So one thing I think needs to be made clear is if somebody is no longer living or they shouldn't be voting in a certain jurisdiction, we don't have an issue with that. We know that it's it, clean voter rolls are a good thing. Um, we don't want people who have been deceased to remain on a voter roll. We don't want people who have moved to another state to remain on the voting roll of you know the state that they were formerly engaged in. So this is it's a critical piece. It's the way that you go about it and making sure that it's done in a way that is fair, that is just, and that ensures that people who should be voting aren't disenfranchised from the process. And so I want to separate that out and just say that you know there's a there's a clean way to do it, and we talked about that a little. Bit earlier. 
But when we talk about these voter ID laws, there have been, um, you know, a lot of wild accusations about, you know, voter ID laws and what it does. But the truth is, it is a tool for disenfranchisement. And there are great examples of it. There are people who do not have IDs or have access to IDs. There are, in some cases, some voter ID laws that also require a physical address to be on whatever ID that is you have. You talk about Native American and tribal communities, for example, where there aren't street addresses on most of the reservations. Um, when you look at people who live in rural communities where it might take them two hours to get to a motor vehicle just to be able to have that ID. Um, so when you sign up and you become a voter that first time when you register to vote, you have to show ID anyway. So the fact that you would have to go time and time again to be able to show identification and there are people who are able to apply for public benefits um, who are then able to register to vote in their local, you know, um, public benefits office. There are a variety of different ways where people have to to prove who they are already in order to be able to vote um, in the beginning. To make that a repeated process is just not only ridiculous, but it's also a way to, to say to some people. Um, your vote is not wanted. And those people, to just be very specific about it, it, it typically involve the younger people, first-time voters, who and people with less access to resources that might be required to, to uh, secure an ID. Yeah, and I mean, senior citizens alone. I mean, a lot of there's they're such an overlooked group. But you think about how many seniors no longer drive. How many seniors don't have a valid driver's license? We've seen seniors who have been disenfranchised because of voter ID laws. And so, you know, um, and, and the fact is that the data just doesn't back it up. When you look at, you know, how many people have erroneously cast a ballot or have done so fraudulently, the data is not there. And um, there, Brennan Center has, a, has some great reports and so many others who can really dig deep into the data around this. And so it's just, it's a faulty argument. Um, and unfortunately, it's one that gets played up way too often. So fraud is not, um, at the end of the day, fraud. the concerns about fraud you believe, the league believes, is, are overblown. Absolutely. And I think even more so, what we believe is that what isn't recognized enough is the fact that how many people don't have access to the ballot. That's the bigger issue, is making sure that everybody has the opportunity to have their voice heard at the ballot box. One of the ways in which uh, access to the ballot has been increased for members of the disabled community, as well as uh, members of military and, foreign and service who are deployed overseas, is access to electronic voting through the Internet. Mm -hmm. Um, I know the League of Women Voters is still kind of looking at these technologies and there are new technologies that are emerging ever, all the time. Um, what are the main concerns with these forms of technology? Because it seems to many that if they work for American Idol, they ought to work for America. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it would be great if you, um, you know, if there was a way to move that forward. Um, but right now is not the moment for it. Um, it's interesting. We, I was talking to somebody else about this and kind of the analogy I used, if you think about it in the context of um, the current pandemic, because there have been this, you know, this uprising and we should be able to, you know, vote electronically. Um, so currently we believe that having a paper trail is critically important to making sure that if there are any um, disputes around elections, that there's always that backup trail, that audit trail, so to speak. Um, and we are just not confident in this moment that um, 
quite frankly, the, the security measures are in place to do so well um, and just to roll something like that out in the immediate. And I look at it sort of like um, the way you would look at this a new vaccine, right? You start cl clinical trials, you do some testing, you try it out here, but here and there before it moves to animals, and then it moves to humans, and then you have your control groups. Um, we need to look at electronic voting in a very similar way. You don't just snap your fingers and make it happen, um, although that would be great, and it's great for American Idol or you know your Zoom poll that everybody loves Zoom these days. Um, but when it comes to something as critical as voting, especially with um, the fact that we know that there are foreign entities who have tried to interfere in our elections, for us at the League, now is not the time, um, but we're not opposed to, in the future, doing some sample testing beyond what already exists. We're speaking with Virginia Case. She's CEO of the League of Women Voters. And we're getting close to the end here, Virginia. And I, I wanted to ask you if you could connect this idea of your, your voice and your vote to the rest of the work of the League of Women Voters. You mentioned earlier gerrymandering and redistricting, which is of huge concern to our nation as we complete the census, which will determine the allocation of congressional seats uh, in the coming decade. Yes, I mean, so the league works on a variety of different issues. A lot of people don't know that we actually even have a seat, a permanent observer seat at the United Nations. And so the league is focused on um, everything from voter education, registration, advocacy work, um, and issue work. We really care very much, not only about what's happening in our democracy and issues of voting rights, but around redistricting. Um, it's something historically the League has done, which ties directly to the census. And so I think the other thing I would like to share for folks is if you have not filled out your census form yet, please do so. If you haven't gotten one, please go to the census website or call your census. Um, because currently the last data I saw was that only 51% of the country or 53%, I'm sorry, I might be misquoting right now, but it's either 51 or 53% of the country had only already filled out their census form, which means that there is already a huge undercount. Um, and so we're working on making sure that that census is complete so that we can move forward with redistricting to make sure that it's about not only who gets elected to Congress, but how much money comes into your state for everything from elections administration to um, you know how, money, how funding is determined for community development block grants. Um, infrastructure, highways, um, all of those basic safety net supports, all of those resources are determined through the census. And so it's really important that people do that. Um, and then big advocacy issues, like I said. So the league at the local level, we are a federated model. So you have local, state, and national. And so at your local level, people could be working on clean water projects. Um, and some, you know, there's just the variety of issues that impact people in their communities as well. Virginia Case, uh, final seconds here. Are you optimistic uh, or pessimistic about the possibility of implementing some of these broader changes on the other side of COVID? On the other side of COVID, I am optimistic that as we have always done as a nation, we will continue to progress. Um, although it can be difficult at times, I think that there is um, always a rainbow after the storm, and I believe that that will continue to be the case. Virginia Case is CEO of the League of Women Voters, and she joined us for our Law Day Forum today. Thank you so much, Virginia. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, and a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for having me, and I want to remind everybody to go ahead and make sure you vote in August and make sure you vote in November.
Thank you very much. Our forum today is presented in collaboration with the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Community partners include Cleveland Votes and the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland. We appreciate your support and partnership. Today's forum is also part of our Voting 2020 series, sponsored by the Sisters of Charity Health System. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America, the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and Thompson Hine, along with many other generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate or consider becoming a member of the City Club cityclub.org slash members. We're going to continue to present our forums throughout this time, either on virtual platforms or here from the IdeaStream studios. On Friday, May 8th, Cleveland Metropolitan School District CEO Eric Gordon joins us to talk about bridging Cleveland's digital divide and why that issue is so urgent today. If you have other ideas about topics or speakers we should feature while we all learn to shelter in place, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.